Sil- the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy brown dog. <laughs> you know what that is, right? Is uh, that from Microsoft Word? They they had it as a checking no, the font type. Uh, it yeah, it uses every letter in the alphabet. Oh, really? Yeah. So if you're learning typing, you have to use every key. So the wow. quick the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy brown dog. God, I, I don't even. That way, have... you have to use every key. So that's a good way to check a typewriter in the old days. Yeah, I had they, no they idea. Did use it to test people's type and see if they can hit every key and stuff like that. And only you would know this kind of stuff. Trivia. This is this is good, like Cliff Clave and tri- trivia. Yeah. It, uh, are you recording all this? I am. <laughs> I am. A bourbon and pie. A bourbon and pie. We're gonna sit down and have bourbon and pie. We talk about life, talking about your past. A bourbon and pie. We're gonna talk about that. Hey, folks. Welcome to Bourbon and Pie, and welcome back. It's been a long time, as I mentioned before, and if you don't or have never heard of this podcast before, we eat bourbon and drink pie, and sometimes that's the way we say it when we are drinking too much bourbon and eating too much pie. But the podcast is about effectiveness. So I talk with people who are effective in what they do, and we have a good time and we learn about their journey. And the hope is that you can take out pieces that might work for you to make you more effective. This podcast is fun. This is a guy I knew from high school, but there was like 30 years or so, maybe 25 years in between where we didn't talk because the guy's an asshole. No, actually, the guy's really nice. And uh, we just, you know, went separate ways. Not no big deal. We weren't super great friends in high school. But it's just one of those things we got back together with a bunch of mutual friends from high school. And then uh, we've been hanging out for the past few years, probably longer than that, probably about five years, maybe even longer. So anyways, uh, he is a great guy. And, and we did this recording back in March of 2019. But this is like Porsche, man. And you know what I mean by that? It means that it is designed to last. So this stuff is still applicable today. And there's it's timeless stuff, man. You know? There's stuff in there that's tidbits of information that is stuff that won't change for the years and years to come. Of course, you know, our references to trivia or something like that, that might be dated, of course. But the content itself is timeless. I can't guarantee it always will be, but for the most part it is. So now this guy is now. When we did this interview, he was the Department of Energy's Operations Director for Lawrence Berkeley National Lab and SLAC, which is the Stanford Linear Accelerator National Accelerator Laboratory. But now he is the Department of Energy's Deputy Site Manager at SLAC. And he's just one of those kind of guys that's really amazing. He's very thorough, really good at what he does. Along the way, in between the, the podcast now and uh, when we first recorded it, is he was given a special act award from the Secretary of Energy, Ernest Moniz. And he did a bunch of work on this fall edge protection stuff and he published his own paper. And so pretty neat guy. 
So here you go and enjoy. Did you want this? Yeah, is that okay? Is that your cheat sheet? Yeah, just in case you stop me. I'm not gonna stop you. Yeah. So bourbon and pie, 10 30 in the morning, and we're literally doing bourbon and pie. And you said that you might not want to do bourbon and pie <laughs> because it's too damn early in the morning. Even though, like by both of our standards, 10 o'clock is really late. It's but not it's really five o'clock somewhere. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Wonder where? Singapore, probably, huh? There you go. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so Tom, you're a guy who I, I'm happy to interview because I think your journey is really interesting and, and how you got there. And I don't know who introduced me to you because I, it just kind of happened. When yeah, you, I agree. When you're, when you're in high school, you just kind of, who knows? Run into you know, each other, right? It's like, I knew you as the intense wrestler, you know, upside down sit-ups and, <laughs> and spitting all day, sucking what uh, cough drops and lifesavers and Life spitting savers, all yeah. day. Trying to lose weight for that day of, of wrestling. Match, yep. So a little competitive, a little, just a little bit, I'd say. It's still there, right? Just a scotch. Yeah? Yeah. And so you you could say that is you've kind of brought that into your life even now, right? You're, you're kind of using some of that, or not even using it, but that's in your nature to be competitive, really? To competitive, not let things go. I, I don't know if it's competitive, but yeah, I don't let things drop and like to you know do the best I can when I do stuff, so... I guess that's part of that. This is a particular trait of Tom's that I find pretty common, which is he will dig deep to find the root cause of whatever problems are. For example, a friend of ours had an ailment and the doctors told him something. Tom did some more research and found out the root cause of what the real problem was far beyond what the doctor had said. And it happens all the time, not just once, but several times. Okay, this is this is our pie, and listen. Frozen this pie. This is a frozen pie. This is the backup pie, because I didn't think we are really going to eat a real pie at 10 in the morning, because Tom, my friend here, who I'm interviewing today, said he didn't want pie. Said no pie in the morning. Are you kidding? I'm a healthy guy. And by the way, he's probably got 4% body fat, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Nah. Like, maybe? Nah, I'm, I'm on a keto diet. <laughs> keto. Keto is like, it, it gave me, it made me gassy i was i was <laughs> seriously i was like what's going on and uh, i'd sit, be sitting in this, this it's from the uh, erythritol and, and the stevia i think mostly and i would go oh burps come on and be like oh yeah those those artificial sweeteners yeah wreak havoc on your intestines man and then this when i thought that was all the gas i had like within a minute later another one i'm going what's going on inside and i wasn't feeling like I couldn't eat. I felt like I'm all gassy. And so I'm like, this is not. So I had to like, I looked up some uh, posts and blogs and see what was going on. And some people had some issues with it. Drinking apple cider vinegar would help and get more acid in your stomach. And that's, I how, just, that's how old. You know? I just decided after three weeks and I only lost two pounds. I don't know. It just, it's a matter of calories in versus calories burned. Yeah. Yeah. I, I need to do more than just walk the dog. I think. <laughs> and, and eat meat. And bacon and bacon, yeah. bacon, and better, better yet, uh, pork belly, which is okay. like, 
which is like the gnarliest. I can't even eat that stuff. It is so gnarly. I couldn't believe that I, I cooked a few strips and, and there's so much I fat. Thought, oh, this is going to be like really good fat. I can use the fat to cook something else later. And it was so much fat. And it was like when I was wiping it out, it got some of my fingers. It couldn't come. It's just like nasty, waxy. Yeah, I was it's... wondering why your hands were silky smooth. <laughs> yeah, I should use it. I should use it because my hands usually aren't. I, I'm glad you're here because I want to talk to people about like their journeys and, and like that's what this podcast is about. And it's like how you got to where you got. We, we could start anywhere. And we start talking about Pioneer, California, where you're a little familiar with the Pioneer. Tell us about, you know, your thought process about it and how you ended up in Pioneer. Yeah. So as people know, well, I shouldn't say that. Most people know living in the San Francisco Bay Area is extremely expensive. So uh, my wife and I decided we were going to get a second home, you know, as a retirement kind of home so that we could afford to live in retirement comfortably. And we both like the mountains. My brother, Andy, lives up. He used to live up in Dorrington, uh, which is off Highway 4, you know, heading towards Bear Valley. And we used to go up there. You know, he had a second home up there and it's kind of a family vacation home. And we used to just love going up there, going sledding right on his property, going skiing, that kind of stuff. So we started looking and we started off down there because my brother knew that area pretty well. Uh, my wife's sister also has a place up in Long Barn, which is off 120, more towards Yosemite. We looked there. We didn't know much about the Highway 88 corridor. And uh, so we started looking up there and just fell in love with the area. It's just yeah. beautiful. I mean, you've been up there, Chris. You've, you know the area fairly well. And so um, just spectacular view. I mean, the last place. Oh, that yeah. You just like, it's just it's beautiful. It's just it's, the the place where I can recharge because, uh, yeah, you know, you know how it is being a manager in Silicon Valley. It's go, 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 go and go. And so yeah. when you get up there, you get a chance to just unplug for a minute, kind of recharge. And... Do you think that your uh, that definition that's been thrown around with the definition of an introvert, where your batteries get charged from your downtime, or is it more when you're around people? So it depends on the people. Some people just drain you. Yeah, I mean, they're 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 a challenge. There actually are some people that like recharge you. They walk in a room and you kind of get a little burst of energy from them. Mm-hmm. And I work with some of both kind of people, but. Mm-hmm. What happens with me is, you know, you, you end up making so many decisions 
um, you get decision overload. That's why folks like Einstein and uh, others, you know, they, they wear the same color clothing or same suit every day because that's one fewer decision they need to make. Yeah, Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg does yeah. it too, right. So, so, so there is a thing recognized as decision overload. Yeah. And at some point, you stop making good decisions. So, so what I like about going up there is I don't have to make any decisions. The only mm. decisions I have to make are for myself. So for me, going up there, even if I'm working on something, they're all my decisions. Yeah. I don't have to worry about, you know, how that's going to affect something else or my decisions. So for me, that just recharges me and gets me to the chill. Yeah. So I don't know where you are in the, in that uh, Myers-Briggs. Do you, do you have, do you know what I, yours I've, is? I've never done it and I'm familiar with Myers-Briggs, yeah, but yeah. no, I've never done it. Probably because it's not scientific. Well, no, it's, it's, I find it fascinating, but yeah. it's, uh, it's when it comes to personalities, there's no firm lines anyway. And mm, so, yeah. so, so there, there definitely are trends and the, the Myers-Briggs identifies those trends or the types of people, but you can never fit into one box. You know, like yeah. Tries to put and you I in. also have heard that, you know, that this is recommended to just evaluate again. And I, I varied, I varied a little bit because I, I borderline, uh, introvert, extrovert, but I'm always extrovert, but I was last the closest i was was like eight percent extrovert but on your spec like not spectrum I'm not, on the spectrum but in your like if you were looking at the you know introvert extrovert extrovert when you said you get charged uh or recharged by people by certain people that's interesting too because then you're not it's not like the people really it's like what you said it's overwhelming of the decision and decisions and the pressure of the day so tell me a little bit about the type of people that do uh, energize you that do you like you know around is it a certain personality type or is it just can you I, describe? I, think, I think it would be a certain personality type or a certain way people come into the office so mm -hmm. so, so there's a couple people i work with that when they come in the office they don't ever say anything negative everything's just like great so i work with the guy named ernest mounty and i know he's going through a lot of stuff with his wife being sick and stuff and he will not walk into the office without saying it's a beautiful day out there every day. If it's raining, if it's sunny, if it's hot, he walks in every single morning. And if he doesn't, God forbid, he forgets to say it. I'll actually walk into his office and go, Ernest, what kind of day is it today? And I'll start laughing. It's a great day today. So he walks into the office, even though I know he's got a bunch going on home and he's always just kind of brings that energy into the office. Mm -hmm. So he's one of those guys that kind of energizes you. He's a real smart guy. In an inspiring way or in like, come more like, wow, gosh, you know, I don't think about this. It gets you thought provoking about like, gosh, I, you know, I'm, I'm worried about all kinds of shit. And this guy's. Yeah, exactly. Because I got stuff and I know it's dragging on my mind and yeah. I don't walk in like that. I walk yeah. in, you know, I'm not negative or positive. I'm actually a pretty bother guy, but he actually says it out loud. The second he walks in the door, everybody mm. hears it. Mm. Everybody. He says it loud. Like, man, it is a great day out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, how can you not like that? Yeah. And then there are other people I work with who I won't use their names where they walk in and they won't even say good morning before they have a complaint on their lip. Mm -hmm. And it's just like those people start dragging you down because they always have a complaint. They don't have a solution. Right. They don't, it's a complaint. So they kind of suck the energy out of you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Especially if they do approach you without just saying, hey, we got this issue, but here's what you do about it. And, you know, if you yeah, don't, they don't have to do that, so, they yeah, just come they in negative. Yeah. Then it's like, okay, then what are you bringing me here? Yeah. Exactly. You're bringing me negativity. So, so that's one thing. Then there's the other people at work. So I work at a pretty unique place where there's a lot of science going on and stuff. And there's people that come in that are so excited about what they're working on. I mean, they come in and they're just like, oh, you know, last night we discovered this. And it's just like, you now you can't help but kind of be like, wow, I work here. I mean, I didn't do this experiment, but I'm helping 
these guys get their jobs done. And it's kind of a cool thing. Those kind of people recharge me too. People just love what they're doing. It's like you can't help but be like, wow, they love what they're doing. That's great. So, And it's because of the product of you creating this environment for them. And so about about that, um, with the environment that you create, is it? Uh, around particularly why don't you just maybe just go ahead and say what you're responsible for and then uh you know that with that maybe you talk about like what you your belief or philosophy is on how you want it run as well so okay so i work for the department of energy at the slack national laboratory and now more recently i'm going up to lawrence berkeley national laboratory um they're two office of science laboratories you know kind of like you know bell labs used to be it's um paid for by the public and basically all these companies and stuff that want to do research in the Bay area or around the world, they can come use, we have a, you know, what's called an accelerator, electron accelerator and photon uh, light source. Any experiment they want to do is free as long as they want to publish the information. And so it's open research uh, and and it's free, but if they wanted to do something that's proprietary or business-based, then they have to pay for what we call beam time. For example, Genentech actually, you know, they have a lot of proprietary information. So what they did is they actually built one of our beam lines. And so they get to use that for free because they built it. But what they also do is when they're not using it, they let the public use it. So my job there is the Slack National Accelerator Laboratory. Stanford University runs it for the Department of Energy. Um, so we have a federal staff there that makes sure that the taxpayers are getting what they're paying for. So my job is I'm currently the acting um, operations director. And so I'm responsible for all of the operations, safety, security, facilities, maintenance for both laboratories. So what that means is we are providing the support and infrastructure for the scientists to actually be doing their research. And so we need to make that as smooth and as inviting as possible to get the best research to come to our site. Yeah. And both sites have had uh, numerous Nobel Prize winners because of the work that they've been doing there. And you can't do that unless everything's running smoothly. Yeah. In fact, the machines at both laboratories run pretty much 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. And people schedule beam time and all that. So if something goes down, these people lose their beam time. They can't complete their experiments. Yeah. So the goal is, you know, I think our goal is 95% uptime for beams. Mm. Um, but we do have scheduled what we call beam maintenance time where you got to fix things every once in a while. So we do that on a regular basis. Yeah. So that's kind of the gist of what I do. And I manage yeah. a team of highly educated professionals in, you know, safety, security, industrial hygiene, the environment, operations, projects. So, yeah. It's, it's pretty complex stuff. And it's, it's got to be highly functional. It's got to be, everything's got to be a lot of lockstep operations. And right. So in, in order to do that, what's the key to do that? I mean, do you, and what sort of people do you need to have in place for that? Or, or what sort of like, you know, do you have to change who you are in terms of your management style, like <laughs> to make sure these things happen or, you know, other things behind that, you know, that really kind of make it go into place? So I don't know if I've changed my management style. I think my management style is what I call uh, flexible. Uh-huh. So depending well, you, on you mentioned democratic, before. democratic, yeah. yeah, yeah. So so uh, so basically, but you, the way you use democratic was was in a was in an interesting way. You said like a, a, a one by one democratic. Your 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 democratic 
per person. Per person, right. Yeah, yeah, it depends yeah. on the personality you're managing. So I've been accused of being very hands-off, and I've also been accused of being a micromanager. And that's a true statement. And what I tell folks is, if I'm micromanaging you, that means you're not meeting my expectations. Mm. So if I have to get involved in what you're doing, means I don't like what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Whereas there's some people, I let them run with what they're doing. They touch base with me every once in a while, and I know they're doing a good job. So I let them just do what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of why I say it's flexible. Um, the other thing I have to be cautious with is um, I'm not in, in, in government world. There's people called contracting officers. Contracting officers can obligate the government to spend money. Mm. I can't obligate a contractor to spend money that hasn't gone through a contracting officer. And sometimes I have to do a little delicate balance on giving direction to the laboratory. Mm -hmm. I can give any technical direction I want, but if I tell them to do something that obligates money, I can get into the trouble, you know, with with the inspector ah. general stuff. So, ah. in those ways, I do have to kind of sometimes change what I would say or do mm -hmm. based on that kind of stuff, but still get the results suggest I want in the laboratory. Suggest, for, yes. Yeah. I'm not telling you to do this, but I wouldn't do it the way you're doing it. Have you thought about X? So, so yeah, you do have to change that way. Whereas with my staff, I can be like, you know, no, we're going to do it this way. <laughs> So, so that needs to change. Here's a pre-written letter that says that I'm not really happy with your performance. I would suggest you do this or I will show this to you. Man. <laughs> that's, that's true. But we do, we do evaluate the laboratories. It's a yearly thing where we actually grade the laboratories and they get what's called a fee. And the fee is above and beyond the contracts. If they do well, they get the entire fee. And if they don't do well, they Ooh. don't get the entire fee. So they do want to perform because they, each laboratory gets a certain amount of fee. And the fee is part of like a bond or some sort of a, where, where is that? Is it the government money that was allocated? It's, it's government. It's, it's almost like a bonus. Yeah. But, but it's not a bonus. They can't put it into bonus and stuff. What it is, is it, it, it can put more money into the laboratory, mm -hmm. into research. The laboratory directors at the labs can just decide they like a particular experiment and get some money. That kind of money can go to those kind of things. So it's incentive for them to do well so they can get more money for things yeah. like that. It, it does not go into bonuses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like along with that, so your, your management style, it's like per case, per person, it's like, so it's customized, you know? And right, that, that makes, go customized. That's a good yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got a lot of things you got to think about, right? Right. So uh, I, I, I envision you like a big giant control center dashboard where you're like kind of watching everything. Uh -huh. It seems like there's a lot of balls in the air and there's, there's a lot happening. And, and as you mentioned, it's timed and scheduled and, you know, people have their beam time and, and other things that have to be like tightly monitored. So how, what's your eyes? Which, how do you see all this stuff happening at the same time? So, um, 
couple ways. So I have a lot of highly skilled staff and they're out in the field. In fact, in their performance plans, it says they must spend 25% of their time in the field, uh, you know, to have uh, situational awareness, you know, boots on the ground. That is also in my position description. So I'm actually out in the field quite a bit. I schedule, so, so we have a bunch of laboratories we have, uh, between the sites, over $2 billion worth of construction going on. I go out into the field every week, um, either by myself, with counterparts from the laboratories, with my staff. I go through, I have month, standing monthly walkthroughs of laboratories with the safety staff. I meet regularly with the facilities director, the environment health and safety director. I meet regularly with the COO of both laboratories. I have a good pulse of what's going on at the laboratory from you know very high management all the way down to what's going on in the field, but you can't be everywhere. So what I do and my staff does is we do what's called a risk-based approach. We figure out what is it that we're worried about and we go look at that stuff. The other mm. stuff we don't even look at. Yeah, and so um, sometimes we'll have to just stay at a high level, but sometimes we'll, we'll go down into the weeds. Mm -hmm. If there's a real big problem, we have subject matter experts. Instead of the lab doing it, what they're supposed to, sometimes we get deep into it and help them solve the problem, mm -hmm. which is not typical for most federal um, oversight um, facilities. And uh, I'm sure you're going to ask me about that later, but that's yeah. one of the things you were saying. Well, how do you know you're being effective? Well, yeah, like you could just talk about that now. I mean, you know, it, like... When you come across these situations where you have to either, I'll say, wartime situation or peacetime situation, there's maybe different approaches in, in both, I'm saying, wartime where a lot of change has to happen. For example, uh, peacetime, things are operating as usual and you're just kind of keeping things on everybody on task. Maybe just talk a little bit about that approach and then thought process in is in general. So, so, so operationally, the laboratories are very good at what they do. So, so what the, the stuff that's always going on, like accelerator maintenance, machine maintenance, facilities maintenance, those things are going pretty well. So I would say that's the peacetime stuff, but there's always a war going on. So these laboratories are changing constantly. The experiments are changing constantly. So sometimes when something's not going well, my staff get very involved. And so instead of just getting a, you know, feedback from the lab, we'll go out into the field more. So one of the techniques we use. And when you say field, like just so people understand uh, what the, the field is, what, what yeah, is that? Boots on the ground, leave your office, go see the work activity, you know, the construction sites, the laboratories, if it's yeah. a high risk activity and we'll be down there. I'll, I'll give you an example. The laboratory currently is rebuilding uh, the first third of a two mile long linear accelerator. And they're getting these things called cryomodules. You don't need to know what they are, but, but they're between four and six million dollars. Uh, my boss actually told the lab, before you receive one of these things, you guys need to practice this 10 times before you get the first one. You're going to shake out all the bugs, make sure that you get this right. Uh, you know, NASA doesn't do a space shuttle launch without running through every situation, you know, as many times until they feel comfortable. So the laboratory in this case didn't do that. And when they got the first cryomodule on site, 
They didn't know what they're doing. They didn't have the right tools. They were using crescent wrenches instead of the tools that were given to us by another laboratory that were locked up in a box. Nobody had the key. The crane didn't work. The jacks, one of them broke. They didn't have a backup. They only have two dolly carriers. They're custom-designed dolly carriers. What if one of those breaks? They don't have a backup. So we got our first one on site. Uh, they were supposed to unload it from a truck and put it on a test stand. Should have taken about four hours. 13 hours later, it was sitting on the ground inside of a tunnel, not where it was supposed to be. So that's the kind of stuff where anytime a cryo module was on site and moving, we had 100% oversight. That meant mm. somebody from my office was standing down there making sure they did it right. Meanwhile, we made them rewrite all their processes and procedures and said, you guys aren't going to do anything but read through the procedure once you get it nailed. Yeah, That's one of the times where we got so into the weeds that let them know we weren't happy with what they're doing that, you know, kind of pissed the laboratory off. So yeah. what they did is now they practice enough times. We do have now seven cryo modules in place in the tunnel out of 36. We have no more 100% oversight. We just go down there periodically to see how things are going. So that's mm -hmm. kind of one way where you go deep with the yeah. management, kind of show them this is important, and then you pull back once they get. Yeah. So. And once you see certain things are operationally, yeah. you move on to the next thing. It, the and next you problem, because like, you know, yeah. we don't have a lot of staff. So we yeah. focus on the big issues, the big problems, the the the, the things that will affect safety, the environment, and then mission in that order. And so when you're talking to certain people, like in these situations, what sort of things are you looking for in these individuals um, to you know have those things like you know trust and autonomy and all those things that are really important for managers to have in people. Is there anything like that that's on your, your radar? You're oh, like, absolutely. okay, like, so. So in our case, you need people that have enough presence that people listen to them. Mm. They have to be people that do what they say they're going to do. And they have mm. to be smart. These are people that have to know what they're doing. So what you need to do is, even if they're smart, sometimes they need a little help getting their job done. So what they have to do is show you repeatedly that once they start getting better, that it's repeatable, it's reproducible, and when there's problems, they own them. Mm. A lot of times, I don't know if you prefer the term, uh, R2A2s, uh, roles, uh, responsibilities, authorities, and accountabilities. That's kind of a military term. So it's R2A2s. A lot of times when there's a situation going, there aren't clear roles and responsibilities or who has the authority to make what decision, and then there's chaos. So if there's somebody there that clearly says, you know, I'm in charge, I've got this. When there's a mistake, I own that mistake. He doesn't blame others. You know, that's when you start getting that warm, fuzzy feeling that this is going to go pretty well. Mm -hmm. And so after they start doing it a while with us going down, there, we're either going to see that that's true or not true. And if it's true, we back off. If it's not mm -hmm. true, then we start talking about, well, let's make some management change. Let's see if there's somebody else who can do it better. And and uh, the labs are pretty good about moving people around. We On this project that was going sideways, we now have a new uh, 
project manager. The mm-hmm. other project manager is gone. There's one that's a lot more hands-on, a lot more um, uh, process-related because we're not going to just do this once. We're going to bring in 36 cryo modules. So, so there needs to be a process. So he brought process, quality assurance, and uh, rigor into the system. So things mm-hmm. are going much better now. You know, take a step back, and and when you know, when we first got into Department of Energy, how did that come about? You know, uh, maybe just talk about where you really set out right out of high school. You know, do okay. you have any idea of what you wanted to do at that uh, point? No, I still Besides don't know. Professional, what I, professional wrestler, wrestler, <laughs> professional wrestler, right? right yeah. WWF. Yeah. Uh, I still don't know what I wanted to do. I wonder what your professional wrestler name would be. T Money. <laughs> Is that what Vince calls you? Uh, no, Don calls me T Money. What, what's T Money from? Is that just your rapper name? Yeah, if it's like kind of my It's a long story, but we were neighbors, and uh, uh, it just—I think his son called me T Money one time. Everybody thought it was funny, and so <laughs> he started calling me T Money. Um, so you showed up at work next day, like, "Hey, Tom." No, hey, no, no, no. no. From now on, it's, it's T Money. Change my name back. The org chart. That's right, <laughs> Doctor T Money. <laughs> Um, so you are a doctor. I am a doctor. Uh, and uh, doctor, of, I know already, but just for the audience. Uh, doctor of chiropractic. Yeah. And you're right. It is a weird journey on how I ended up where I am. So should I tell you that? Yeah, yeah. I uh, think that'd be good. Okay. So it all started uh, probably back in high school. And I realized I was really bad at math. And so I figured if I went into biology... I wouldn't have to use very much math. So I kind of thought I was going to go into biology. My grandfather happened to be a chiropractor. I thought, okay, biology, chiropractor. And I, and I was interested in the, in the life sciences. So after graduating from high school, I went into biology. And my goal at that point was to become a chiropractor. And so, you know, I went through, you know, five years at Cal Poly. Yeah, it's supposed to be four, but yeah, I was five. And uh, when I graduated, I wanted a break, so I didn't go into chiropractic right away. So I went into biotechnology. So in biotechnology, I worked at several biotech companies in the Bay Area. I did work doing cancer research. I did arthritis research. I did work for B-cell lymphoma. And then I got into a vaccine company. I worked at uh, Metamune Vaccines working on Parainfluenza, influenza, you know, flu mist instead of getting a shot, you get a spray up the nose. Um, the company was going to close. And at that point, I thought it was a good time to go back to school. So the company was uh, not closing. I'm sorry. They were moving to San Diego. So instead of moving to San Diego, I went back to chiropractic school, got my chiropractic degree. And once I got out, uh, started practicing a little bit and realized I didn't like the business side of the chiropractic, you know, dealing with insurance cups and stuff. I like mm-hmm. dealing with the patients. And uh, of course, when you start chiropractic, you know, you, you're not making a lot of money right away. You got to build a client base. So I started working back in biotech while I was building my practice. Ah, so how did you do that? Like, did you have split hours or is that you literally worked full time? I literally was working full time and, and the company was pretty cool. The company actually let me treat people at the company like during lunch. Yeah. And so I, they had a little room set aside for me. But I also was working Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturday, Tuesday, Thursday night, and Saturday mornings, you know, building my practice. 
So while I was there uh, at this one of these biotech companies, there were a lot of ergonomic issues. And I'm like, well, this guy's a chiropractor. Why don't we have him help us with our back injuries, our ergonomics? So I started kind of doing that for the company. I also had a pretty good biological background. And uh, so they said, hey, you know, why don't you be our biosafety officer? So I became like the biosafety officer. And then they're like, hey, we have lasers. You know anything about lasers? No. Well, you're now the laser safety officer. And then, hey, there's construction. So I started getting into the safety world while I was doing biotech and chiropractic. And so they did they put you in like education programs where it was like, hey, you got to figure this out. You learn by yourself. Exactly. So I went Just to like, a uh, should I look at this laser in the eye? Should, yeah. Exactly. So I didn't know. You're right. So they sent me to laser safety officer training. And so I became knowledgeable in lasers. And then uh, took a lot of biosafety courses, that kind of So I started on that. And then I did go to UC Santa Cruz. I forgot about that. I did go to UC Santa Cruz. I got a certificate in safety at UC Santa Cruz. I was a, like a multi-year program, night school. So I do have a certificate in safety from UC Santa Cruz. And then I went to work for Stanford at the linear accelerator yeah. in, in the safety department. And from, that, that, that's been really cool. I mean, it was like very cool. It's a very is, best place I've ever worked. Very it's cool. It's the only thing of its kind. I mean, it's right. Is there anything else like that it, there, in, there, in there, on Earth? Not quite like us. We're one of the biggest, what's called linear accelerators. We have the most powerful electron-free laser in the world. Um, but there are other laboratories, Office of Science laboratories, that have accelerators. Mm. We have one, probably the biggest linear accelerator. They're going to make a one called the international linear collider is going to be even bigger than ours. Mm. But uh, there are multiple areas in Japan, CERN and France, where they discovered the Higgs boson, um, all similar to what we do at Slack. We just have some strengths that other labs don't. Every lab has its own core uh, mission and mm. strength. You know, ours happens to be a very bright, ultra fast science. Mm. So, um, and then, so I did work for Stanford for a while, and then I went, quote, to the dark side, to the Department of Energy. When you're an employee at Slack, they call any government agency the dark side. Is that what well, no, it's kind of a joke. Okay. Like when I went over, a lot of people who knew me said, oh, so you're going to the dark side. And they, they call it the dark side because, you know, it's the government, the big bad government. You know, it's tied to the inspector general, that kind of stuff. So there is a little bit of a cop mentality when it comes to that because, mm -hmm. you know, uh, we have a lot of authority. Yeah. And so when I went to the quote dark side, they thought it was a good thing because everybody knew me. So they said it yeah. was a win-win for the lab. You know, I knew the laboratory from being a worker, being now moving to the department of energy. It was a good thing all around. Yeah. Um, so then I started off just as a worker bee at the department of energy. And then I got promoted to be, you know, the supervisor for all the safety staff. And then as you said, as a career goes, so then now I'm the operations director, which means I have broader responsibilities, um, just kind of moving up the food chain just yeah. by, like you said, building trust, doing what you say, that kind of stuff. So yeah. it's kind of been my career path. So when people do talk about you or when you've heard people talk about you, uh, they say things like, what, dependability probably. It's probably your biggest the one I'm going to guess. But what, what other kind of adjectives would they say about you? Again, it'll depend the, on the person. The, the A word, not the asshole. Not I know it's not that. Well, some people would say that. Really? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, you don't get because I know you said you've had to be really hard on people, but exactly. But Sometimes. like, uh, you know, it's just you do it out of necessity. It's like right. It's I like, mean, everybody's got a different personality, and a lot of people don't like to be told what to do, 
And so there are people that when I have said, you know, this is the way this is going to go, it's like, of course, you're going to think you're the A word. Yeah. And not awesome. Yeah. And, uh, but I would say in general, what people would say is uh, dedicated, reliable, trustworthy. I do what I say I'm going to do if, yeah. unless, until I can. And if I can't, I'll go back and say, look, it didn't happen. But yeah, um, definitely like as my friend, tons of integrity as a person. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think most what gets me to where I am is I'm not afraid to tackle the tough problems. Mm. And so I do get the tough problems even sometimes when I don't want them. Uh, so so I have a reputation for being able to solve the difficult problems. Mm. That's why I get them, I guess. Sometimes when you work at a company and you can do something better and somebody else is doing it, mm -hmm. why not do it? Yeah. So I don't know if it's competitive. It's just, I guess I don't like inefficiency or things going wrong or stuff, but yeah. I'm also not afraid to do it. And, and one of the things I like to say is, you know, the reward is commensurate with the effort. If everything's easy, there's no reward in it. Uh, yeah. 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 So if you solve a difficult problem, you know, when you're done with that problem, how do you feel? Right. Yeah. So it's like, it's like, oh my God, I finally got that thing done. It's like, and it worked and it's like, ah, so, yeah, it's like grit. I mean, right. like people have grit, have that. That's the, the big driver in them. You right. know, they, they like the challenge that and, and, and the, the challenge gene. Yeah. 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 yeah not everybody's got that. A lot of people right. don't like the challenge. Just kind of want to cruise. I actually like the tough job. Mm -hmm. There's a there's fear associated with that, because if you screw up, you're you own that screw up, too. So yeah. you had to balance the reward with the with the fear of failure. Mm -hmm. But then that comes to your management. So if you have management the trust that, you know, you've got a good thought process and you're good at your job. Doesn't mean you're always going to get it right. Yeah. But as long as you've got good management and they know you make sound decisions, have a good thought process. And even if you screw up, they'll be like, Hey, you know, don't do that again, but they don't just throw you under the bus. That gives you that, I don't know what you call it. The, uh, courage to be able to try to tackle the strong problems. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I have that management. Yeah. And that's, to you, it seems that's important, right? Having that kind of support right. around you. The ability to fail. Right. That's being talked about a lot lately. Safety and, and being allowed to fail. People have who are failing forward or whatever you want, however you want to put it. Right. And, you know, we forget about the people that have been famous throughout history who are famous because they've made a career out of failing. Yeah. Hilton went bankrupt seven times. Before really? he finally made it. Really? Wow. I don't I know if it's seven, but he failed numerous times. He was yeah. in bankruptcy several times before he finally made it. Yeah. I mean, we keep hearing that, right? So, you know, Edison and, and Einstein, they, they talk about that, you know, that, it, that is some, it's an opportunity to learn. From your you mistakes, know. yeah. Yeah. And it's, I still think that in my own observation that in the Valley, you know, I'm speaking only from the Valley because it's my own little vacuum, that even though executives are are aware of it and people speak to it and they might read Harvard Business Review and they see case studies on it and that how it's important to have that kind of environment. And there's exemplary companies that, that Google or like, like Google and other companies who show it, it's still not practicing it or it's not a muscle that's being flexed or they're just not knowing really how to uh, make it okay. And so there's just something missing with that. But in your situation, you have it, you're allowed to, it proliferates down, Does it, like from you, you, you also push it down the chain and, and in terms of everybody else. 
Oh yeah. My staff all know that I'm not right all the time, but yeah. Um, when people are doing work, what like, happens so, when you're wrong? Like well, what happens when they approach you and go, I mean, or are, do they feel comfortable enough? Well, I've never say, been wrong. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, Come on. Yeah. yeah. yeah like, no, um, no. Uh, my staff know that um, they can approach me and if they have a better idea than I do, they're going to tell me. And so yeah. there are numerous examples where I've said, you know, we're going to go this direction. I think this thing. And then after people think about it, well, they'll come back and be like, have you thought about going this way? And I'm like, no, I, I really didn't. That sounds pretty good. They'll ask, can we try it? Like, yeah, let's try it. And there's been numerous times where something I had in place gets tossed out and we'll put in a new process or a new way of doing things. Just based no on ego. Stuff. Well, everybody's got ego. I, I wouldn't say I have a big ego. I would say what I want is, you know, for this lab to be successful and whatever that takes. Yeah. It's, I'm, I'm not the be all end all. If somebody's got a better idea. I'm all for it. So it's a humility thing. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I know I make mistakes. I know I don't have the right path all the time and they know it and they know that they are in a, they're, they're, these are all very highly educated people, very smart people, smarter than me. They know that if, if they have a good idea, I'm going to at least listen, we may not go that route, but yeah, a lot of times we go that route and yeah. it works and there's more than one way to solve a problem, but sometimes there's better ways to solve a problem. So how much do you think that mindset what they just said with failure, how much does it weigh in on the people's attitudes and behaviors of their work because they're allowed to, to fail or it, at least have been shown? So if you're allowed to fail, that means you can try riskier things before it. we never take those kind of risks when it comes to safety. This is more mission risk or that kind of stuff. Cause yeah. when some safety things, you make a mistake, somebody dies. Yeah. But when it comes to mission risk, uh, you know, that kind of stuff, when you allow people to fail and be innovative, you're going to get a better product. You're going to get something nobody thought of before. If you have fear in the system, a fear of failure, that's just so encompassing, you can't fail everybody's going to make the safe decision, right? So especially in science, if you stay safe, you're not going to make that next discovery. You've got to push the boundaries. Mm -hmm. So if you're so worried about failure, you're never going to push those boundaries. And that comes with projects, that kind of stuff. So I think it's important for people to know that. Yeah. And yes, do we fail? Sometimes we fail, but then you learn from it, you pick up and you do better the next time. And I like how that plays into your life with the mattresses on top of cars. <laughs> Uh, strapping uh, things yeah. on and things falling off. Yeah, uh, I, I told my wife. He's <laughs> so, talking about so the time. I'm, I'm, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> he's Give talking, me a hard time about that. He's giving me a hard time about uh, me losing a mattress on the freeway. And I, <laughs> being a safety guy, I had uh, so many straps and ropes on this mattress. I jokingly said to my wife, "There's no way this mattress is coming off this vehicle unless the roof rack breaks." <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. <laughs> the missing or the weak link was the, the attachment of the rack to the car. Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, I no longer have that part of the rack on the car. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever recover it? Did it get damaged? Or oh, no. Uh, so, so I lost the crossbars on the rack and bent the side rails. And so uh, Instead of buying new ones, I now have a Thule rack. But the mass, the mattress, all the mattress is gone. It's gone. Okay. The, the, the box spring got hit by a van, blew apart, and the mattress got dragged halfway across the freeway, so it ripped. And so yeah, CHP showed up, and uh, as I was dragging it off the freeway, 
thought I was going to get a ticket or something. He said, did anybody stop? I'm like, no. Nope. He goes, are you thinking of Caltrans or coming to pick up your mattress unless you want it? I'm like, I don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> that was an easy one. Yeah. So, <laughs> Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, um, we had to give you a hard time about that. Yes. <laughs> Mr. Safety. Mr. Safety. Yeah. But, you know, uh, you took a risk. You took a risk. Any inspirational pe- people in history or your, in your life that inspired you? Uh, well, I mean, there's been a, quite a few people who inspired me. My current boss is very inspiring. My wife has inspired me. A lot of my friends inspired me. Like, and I've known your wife longer than you. I know. You've known my wife since elementary school. Since seven years old. Wow. Yeah. Yes. Uh they were very intimidating. She was, she's a twin. That's right. And they were the the very intelligent Yoshida twins. And it was like, oh my gosh, I don't know anything. <laughs> That's how I feel still. <laughs> <laughs> how how did she inspire you? So uh, you say I'm competitive. I don't know if I'm competitive so much as maybe driven mm. to to do better, to better myself. So mm-hmm. I was constantly trying to be somewhere at a certain time like i was gonna be a chiropractor i'm gonna get this many patients i'm gonna have this much money i'm gonna live here and i was never there as most people know your goals or what you set out to be when you grow up and i'm still figuring that out your path always twists and turns and so what my wife told me one day it was like a sledgehammer i was frustrated about you know something that had gone wrong and she said look she said, oh, you're always frustrated because you think you need to be somewhere else right now and what she told me was it's not the destination, it's the journey. She said, if all you're worried about is the destination, you're just going to miss the entire ride getting there. Because she said, you know what? You might not ever get there. And it's true because if you think about it, I mean, I have changed careers so many times. I don't know what's next. And if I was worried about that, I wouldn't be happy right now. So that was one of the most inspiring just things my wife ever told me. And I distinctly remember the day she told me that. Wow. Yeah, I definitely remember her just kind of mm. stopping me in my tracks going, what are you so worried about? Yeah. And it was right wow. before I changed jobs. I was very unhappy with the job that I had at the time. And this is uh, when you're in a, like the biotech stuff? Uh, I was just getting into the safety realm. Mm-hmm. I had left mm-hmm. one company in safety and gone to another one. And mm-hmm. I had a boss that just wasn't working for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, she just kind of stopped me dead in my tracks. And she said, look, you can get another job. And you don't need to be where you think you need to be right now. So mm-hmm. it was it was huge at the time. Yeah, good advice. Wow. And you hear it, but when it's in the context of your of the craziness or what exactly what you're doing, it it's more meaningful, right? Absolutely. It's like uh, reading a quote anywhere on sure. Pinterest, and you know until it really grabs you for where you are. Absolutely. It, yeah. Yeah, it's all the knowledge we we have. We get spout off quotes, but not until it really means something. <laughs> right, exactly. Do you have like a sort of like a, a hero? approach to your day? Oh, oh yeah, you can say that too. But like, do you have an approach to your day? Like, do you have some sort of a a philosophy, if you will, about about the way you approach your work or your day or with anything you do? You know, buying your, your recent house, there's there's a lot of challenges because you've got you got work and. You're in different locations and driving back and forth on the weekends and stuff. And that right. was a lot of stuff, um, relocating and all that. But so with all the stuff that's going on in your personal and work life and everything, is there something that you use to kind of ground you a little bit or?
And I'm reading this book also. It's right here. Quiet. Yeah. By Susan Kane. That's it. And um, and a lot of where we don't put a lot of uh, value in those who uh, need the time to process and think about things. And that's kind of what they're touching upon. And it's really about introverts and understanding introverts. But, you know, it's like the way we do respond to um, people who speak the loudest and the most and the, and the fast first and yeah, the, the first to speak up fast, the loudest, whatever, when there's not a lot of value put in the ladder, you know, just like, you know, someone's like, well, let's, let, let's just noodle that, let's come back to it in a day, whatever that is that that's needed for the problem. Uh, and I was just talking to a friend yesterday who, um, their board, there was a board at this company how, who, um, whenever they ran into challenging situations, they would all agree to meditate, take time, step away, come back in a few hours or whatever it is that they would set a time to, to get to a level where they put some thought into it. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes when you make it, decision quickly because you have to you go home and then like two in the morning i'll my eyes will pop open and i'll be like oh my god i think i just made a mistake like mm -hmm. you have time to process it mm -hmm. and sometimes what i'll do is i'll send myself a quick email so i don't forget but yeah there, there's been times like you said where if you make a decision too quickly it sounds right at the moment and then you go back and think about it and you're like oh, i missed this or you know so yeah so i get it sometimes yeah. you need to pause and yeah reevaluate what would, uh, just to kind of wrap here, I, I always like this question, at least for for myself and, uh, and other people I ask, it's what advice would you give to a younger version of yourself? A um, couple things. So uh, one is math is important because <laughs> uh, I went into my career uh, in biology because I didn't want to do any math and I do so much math now being a safety engineer and a manager and I do a lot of math. So uh, math is important. I would tell people that be prepared to have all your goals get thrown out the window because you don't know what life's going to throw at you. Mm. So there's going to be so many twists and turns in what you think you're going to end up doing. Don't get stuck like I did on, I got to be here at this time, here at that time. It's never going to happen. You're going to be disappointed. And yeah. uh, one of the other things that I like to say is never walk past a difficult problem, even if you don't think it's yours to solve, because, mm. you know, that's how you make the change you want to be, right? You always hear that. Yeah. Other, yeah. Another thing like that. And, uh, I did have another one. Well, when you're, you're saying, when you do say never walk past the difficult problem, can you give me an idea of that? Cause you know, of course, if it's someone else's problem, it's their problem. But are you saying when you've you know, have an opportunity to don't avoid it or. Yeah. So like, I'll give you an example. So I'm responsible for the safety at now at, for, for about 12,000 people at two laboratories. And I take that job seriously. But when I leave the site, is it my responsibility to keep somebody else safe? You know, the area we live in the Bay area. So on, um, Hillsdale Avenue, they were doing some construction, uh, building some condominiums. And I was driving by and I saw this guy had put a ladder inside of what's called a um, boom lift, you know, those things, you see, a man lift. And he put a ladder in that 
and climbed up onto a roof of a building and the ladder was below the roof. And so this guy's up there three stories high and there's about a four or five foot gap between the ladder and his foot. And he's trying to get back on this ladder in a boom lift. He's, he, you know, he's probably 45, 50 feet high. And I was driving and I wanted to get home. It was a, been a long day and I'm thinking, that's not my problem. And then I started feeling guilty. So I actually made a U-turn, pulled into the job site, asked for the superintendent and said, you got a guy up there on the roof trying to get back on this thing. And then they all freaked out and went over and actually were like surprised the guy was up there. So that's what I mean. Don't walk by a prom if it's an important prom. So could I have driven home? Absolutely. Did I? No, I started thinking about it. I'm like, I should go back. I can save that guy's life. And so I went back. The ironic thing is I also have a, a coworker who is a safety person. And I had told her this story. I didn't tell her where it was. I'm not kidding you. Two weeks later, she comes in. She thought, I had to go stop at a job thing. I'm like, where was it? And she told me it was the same damn job site. She had done the same thing and stopped at the same company, same construction site to stop an unsafe work activity. She didn't have to. I didn't have to. That's yeah. what I mean. If there's something that's important, even if you don't think it's yours to solve, that's mm. kind of the thing. You, you should solve it if it's important. Yeah. Yeah, that reminds me of this case study on Alcoa and how the, uh, this new CEO came in and when Alcoa is having a lot of problems and uh, all he said in the their first uh, shareholders meeting was, we're just going to focus on quality. And wow. people were like, wait, wait, what, what are we doing with the business? And you know what? He said, we're just focusing on quality. That's it. And it turned the company around where everybody owned it. Everybody didn't turn an eye to opportunities. And it, it, there's even stories where individuals saw construction sites. They saw people weren't doing things right. And they made a call, had hard hats or right. something and, or whatever it was that was needed. And that changed the attitude of the whole company. And it, it the, the company was booming. It just turned right. it all, all around within a year and a half or so. So, but it was just weird at one metric, right? Just one metric right. like that, but just played into the culture. Absolutely. And, and, and so, and people were hired and fired off of it too. It, uh, safety issues were not, didn't turn an eye to it. They actually addressed it and got rid of people. It's, it's funny because now that you mentioned, that's probably why me and this woman both stopped the, the job because we're, where we work and it's, uh, you know, you always hear you have a right to stop unsafe activity. A lot of companies say that. Yeah. So in Department of Energy at Slack uh, and at Berkeley, we've kind of modified that. And the saying now, it's not even a saying, it's, it's, it's in the culture. Everybody has the right, and then we change it to say, and the responsibility to stop an unsafe activity. And so people take that to heart because it's a, what we call a just culture or a safe culture. People aren't afraid to report something, even if they're wrong. Even if the person was doing something right, nobody's gonna be like, hey, you stop the work and slow it down. So it works. Mm. So yeah, you're right. It's, it's part of the culture and people kind of buy into it. And the other thing we'd like to say is, no, don't just do that at work. Don't have that fun. Take it home with you. Mm. So you shouldn't have to change your standards from, you know, from the moment you show up on site to the moment you go home, have the same set of standards. So yeah, quality standards, culture is very important. <laughs> That's, is that going to be your mantra? Uh, for another podcast. For another, for another podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I really want to thank you for taking the time 
out of your day. It's early. It's the earliest one, earliest That's I drank right. bourbon. Not in my life, but <laughs> yeah, you, you finished know. yours. I didn't. Yeah, you look all right. Yeah, it's just take a shot before you drive. Yeah, you're yeah. you're you're starting to look better by the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I appreciate it, Tom, and uh, it's been great having you as a friend. It's not like it's ending now, but I'm just saying, <laughs> like, it's like, <laughs> see you later. That's all. I all these years, I only wanted you to do a podcast, oh, and now, now done. I'm done with you. Okay, no, but it's like I'm so glad that we all got back together and uh, yeah. we're all hanging out again. So. So thanks again. And um, I'm going to end on this, though. One of the things you didn't ask me is, uh, you know, how do you recharge yourself? Well, you did, but I didn't yeah. say this. Is You surround yourself with people that lift you up, yeah. not those people that break you down. The only reason I'm here is because you're one of those guys that lifts me up. Oh, so. thank you. I appreciate All that. Right. Thanks, man. That's on tape. Yeah. <laughs> it's on solid state. Yeah. All right, man. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you liked this episode and you think it could help someone become more effective, please share it out. You could also find me on LinkedIn and YouTube, where if you post a helpful comment, you could be one of the monthly recipients of a bourbon and pie t-shirt. What? As always, we want to hear from you so you can make bourbon and pie even better. So for gold sykes, email us with ideas and questions at 411-at-bourbonandpie.com. Okay, so a little bit about me. I've spent my whole career working in the Silicon Valley with roles in marketing and brand, retail packaging, program management, and now as a career coach. Have you shaken it up? I mean, your career. I say it's good to refresh yourself every three years. So perhaps it's time to reinvent yourself. What about getting your team to function like a laser instead of an old incandescent flashlight with batteries on the verge of corrosion? Should you want to charge your career or make your team more effective with workshops, then go to www.bourbonandpie.com slash mission possible select a questionnaire that best suits your needs and when your answers come in and if they align to something i think i can help with i'll reach out to you and find some time for us to talk this episode was produced by captain mo with loads of help from the infamous fm modulator man who helped a lot with sound and sound advice for the podcast Theme song was written by Brock Scaresi. For these past three years, it's been a lot. And a big shout out to just some of the amazing people who have helped me. Sister T, thank you for being my co-pilot in our parent-giving journey. I couldn't do it without you. Boom Boom, you're the Boom Boom. So thank you for all the Boom Boom and being your amazing, supportive, and understanding self. Love you so much. Meet Sweats Matt, you're always there when we need you and with all your financial calculations, your insight, and massive truck. Sheepshagger for being a squirrely bastard, which isn't all that you're good at. Thanks for being such a great friend. Rizzo and S, our talks and support for each other mean a lot to me and I hope they will never end along with the squirrels that I hope will never end.
Did I say squirrels? I meant swirls. Tommy Gunn and Dina for being such great friends and helping us a lot with major transactions. Fee, mon levy fee, for concerts, wine buses, parties, and your lovey love. Love you so much. And a special thanks to Chef. You have been hugely instrumental in getting us grounded in what could possibly be the best place to live and play in. Love you so much. I'm Chris Escobar, reminding you that pie makes it happy and bourbon keeps it real. And as always, be kind out there. This is a Boom Boom production. It is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>